Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. So by the decree of Cyrus, all the Jews who were in Babylon who wanted to return were allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, ultimately to rebuild the city walls. But when they got there, they encountered all kinds of resistance from the people who were already there. And so even though the work on rebuilding the temple began initially, as Zerubbabel brought Jews back to Jerusalem, after a little while, the work stopped. So God sent them a couple of prophets. Last week, we looked at the prophet Haggai, and we looked at what he said, how he inspired them to start rebuilding the temple again. And his argument was basically, well, look at the state you're in. And yet the house of God is in ruin I can draw the connection for you. The connection is you haven't honored God's house. You've let it lay in ruin all these years. Therefore, God is making sure that you have bags with holes and that you never have enough and you're never quite warm and you're always hungry. And and the reason for that is that you're neglecting God. Okay, well, that was the essential argument of Haggai. And Zechariah prophesied around the same period of time. Haggai only spoke for a couple of months, whereas Zechariah spoke for a couple of years. And they overlap. And Zechariah's approach was different. His approach was, think about what this is ultimately going to be. Think about the glory of the temple to come. Think about the restoration of Israel. Think about the things that God is going to do for you as a result of this temple. And then he becomes positively messianic. And he speaks of how the Messiah is going to be there and stand on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is going to cleave in half. And so he's, he's looking into the future for what's to come. But then he also says things that sound like the book of Revelation. You'll find many of the same themes in the book of Revelation, like the four horsemen with the four different colored horses. The four horsemen of the apocalypse is not something that John just made up. It's something you find in the book of Zechariah all the way back there. So let's start tonight by looking at a little bit more of the inspiration that caused the Jews to return to their building. And then for the majority of the night, we'll be back in the book of Ezra in Ezra chapter 5 and reading about the rebuilding effort because the resistance from their neighbors is not going to stop but they are so inspired by what they've heard from the prophets that they start the rebuilding effort anyway despite what the authorities have told them to do so we'll look at all that we'll apply some of that but let's start in Zechariah chapter 8 turn there for a moment or dial it up on your phone or your iPad push the appropriate buttons Okay, in Zechariah 8, here's an example of what Zechariah has to say that inspires 
the Jews to continue the building effort. Now, I said last week that we will eventually get to looking at Zechariah, the whole book, but I just want you to get a sense of what it was that so inspired the builders to get back to work. For instance, the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Do you know what that means, Lord of hosts? When, whenever you see that particular nomenclature, you're talking about the absolutely sovereign God, and you're talking about the God who is in charge over all the angels and all the hierarchy of heaven and earth and below the earth, the hosts of beings that were created by God and which exist. He is Lord. He is master over all of them. So nobody else can use the name Lord of Hosts. I can say that I'm the gym of my kids. You know, I'm, I'm the dad of kids. I got two of them. And those are the only ones that I have any authority over. And now as they're getting older, even that is waning. I was going to say, that's what you think. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think, exactly. But when you see the word Lord of hosts, recognize that that is an Old Testament phrase for the sovereign God, the one who's in charge, the almighty who rules over his creation. So thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. So in other words, even though Zion has been destroyed, even though Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon have had their way with it, I'm not going to leave it in that state because it belongs to me. Now, you'll see this word jealous a lot in the Bible. God defines himself as I am a jealous God. But he's not talking the way we humans mean jealous. He's not talking green with jealousy. He's talking about the fact that what is his is his and nobody can change that fact. And so even though Israel may rebel, Israel still belongs to God because God is jealous for his people. And even though his city may be destroyed in Zion, may have gone through all kinds of destruction, nevertheless, he's not going to leave it like that because it belongs to him and he has great longing for it. And that's what this word jealous means. So I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Verse 3, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Now we see those kind of predictions all the way through the Bible that someday not only Jerusalem, but every place where God exists and his name goes out is going to be holiness unto the Lord to the degree that even the pots and pans say holiness to the Lord, even the bridles on the horses say holiness to the Lord. So here's another of those predictions that God is not going to leave Jerusalem in the state it's in. Recognize that as Zechariah is saying this, the walls of Jerusalem, many of them have been knocked down, many have been torn down many of the walls of the temple aren't even standing the rebuilding effort is just beginning and here is the prophet of God saying I'm zealous for Zion for Jerusalem and eventually this city which is now in ruins is going to be called the city of truth and it will be called my holy 
mountain. Now, I've said to you a few times, when you think about Jerusalem, geographically, it's up on the side of a hill so that it has kind of a rock formation behind it so it can't really be ta- attacked from behind. So the attacks from the enemies are going to be coming toward the city uphill, which is why the walls exist in the front of the city. But, but God refers to that as the mountain, my holy mountain. So the holy mountain is going to be Jerusalem. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of his age. In other words, they're going to dwell safely. They're going to grow old. They're going to be fine. They're going to be protected. They're going to be provided for. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult for me, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay, you think, look at the destroyed city, look at the destroyed temple, the walls have fallen This is one day going to be the holy city. This is going to be the holy mountain. This is the place God is jealous for. But the people looking at it would think, how can that be? And God's answer is, you think it's difficult. It's too difficult for you. But does that mean it's too difficult for me? I'm God. I'm the Lord of hosts. I can do it if I want to do it. So what is he going to do? Thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they will be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. How many times have we seen that phrase over and over again out of the mouth of all the prophets? They will be my people. I will be their God. That is a consistent testimony from God, a declaration over and over again that Israel are his people and he's not going to give up on them. And that at one point, finally, he's going to give them the spirit and he's going to inhabit them and they are going to react to him in a way that they can genuinely be called his righteous, holy people. Holiness is going to break out among them and he's going to be their God, and they're going to be his people. And if you say that's not true, or you say that God is done with Israel, or Israel's been replaced by any other people group, then you're saying that the Bible's just not true. The Bible's not plain. The Bible's not perspicuous. You can't read it and understand what it's saying, because God keeps saying that Israel's going to be his people, and he will be their God, but clearly he doesn't mean that. So I take the Bible at face value. God intends to do this to the people of Israel. He's going to save his people from the land of the east, from the land of the west, all the places where he scattered them. He's going to bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. So that's the land promise. It's not good enough to say he's going to gather the church to heaven and that way he is satisfying the promise. He is making a very physical promise that they're going to be brought back to the very Jerusalem that the work is going on in. So would any of the people hearing that, hearing the prophet say God's going to bring his people back to Jerusalem, would any of them have thought at that moment, oh, he's talking about bringing the church to heaven. 
No, of course they're not going to think that. They're going to think we're in Jerusalem, we're repairing Jerusalem because the people of God are coming back to Jerusalem. I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. They will be my people. I will be their God in truth and righteousness. So thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of my prophets. Those who spoke in the days that the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid to the end that the temple might be built. So here's the word directly from God. Be strong. Listen to your prophets. I've sent you prophets on purpose. Do the work. Get back to rebuilding my house. Go forward in the book of Zechariah for a minute. Go to chapter 9, verse 11. Same idea. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. In other words, I've dug you back out of the pit that you were in. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double for you. For I will bend Judah as my bow, and I will fill the bow with Ephraim. Okay, that's southern tribes and northern tribes, the whole 12-tribe conglomeration, and he's going to use them to do battle with the surrounding nations. And I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And I will make you like a warrior's sword. And then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and march in the storm winds of the south. And the Lord of hosts will defend them and they will devour and trample on the sling stones and they will drink and be boisterous as with wine and they will be filled like the sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people for they are as the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs, grain will make the young men flourish and new wine the virgins. And then he goes on in chapter 10 to talk about God sending rain and that he's going to give them plenty. Okay, that's the Zechariah prophecy. So when you compare that to Haggai, Haggai says the state you're in right now is not good because the temple lays waste. Zechariah says, on the other hand, be strong and get back to work because God has all these plans for this glorious temple still. Mm. Ultimately leading to Messiah's coming. He's going to be here in Jerusalem. You need to rebuild the temple. Now you can go to the book of Ezra. Now that you have some sense of why the people after 16 years of not building would suddenly return with great vigor, they go back to work and they're convinced it's the right thing to do because their neighbors are going to write to the governmental authorities and say, look, they're rebuilding. This can't go on. They are going to reply, King Cyrus said we can do this. Now, by this point to chapter 5 in the book of Ezra, Darius is king in Persia. And so... 
they are going to write to Darius. The enemies are going to write to Darius and say, how can this be? But they claim that a previous king of Persia, Cyrus, gave them a decree that allows them to do this. Can that possibly be true? Darius sends servants to go look into the annals of the kings, which aren't even in the palace at Shushan, and so they had to go searching for them. They had to go dig them out, and it turns out that they found them and once Darius found out that this was a decree from Cyrus and that the Jews were actually doing what Cyrus had allowed them to do, not only agreed to let them continue doing it, but ultimately says, anybody who resists it, I'm going to make your house into a dung heap. Okay, so it really turns good for the Jews. Why? Because they listened to their prophets. The prophets came and said, God says do this Here's the reasons why. It's going bad for you because you're not doing it, and it's going to go good for you if you do it. They get to work doing it despite the fact that their enemies don't like it, and God ends up blessing them as a result of it. And even the king, Darius, who's no friend of the Jews, ends up siding with them and saying that they need to rebuild their temple, and ultimately the temple is rebuilt Passover begins again, the sacrifices begin again. So that's the next couple of chapters. We better start reading or the time will get by us. Starting at Ezra chapter 5, we read it last week, verse 1. When the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, they prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. But at that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, saying, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple? And to finish this structure. And then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. So they're telling them who the captains are, who's making the plans, who's in charge. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until a report should come to Darius and then a written reply should be returned concerning it. So this is a copy of the letter which Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his colleagues, the officials who were beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent a report to him in which was written thus, To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones, and beams are being laid in the walls. And this work is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands. Then we asked the elders and said to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names so as to inform you that we might write down the names of the men who were at the head of this building effort. And thus they answered us, saying, 
We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God and also the gold and the silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And he brought them to the temple of Babylon. And these King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given to one whose name is Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed to be governor. And he said to him, take these utensils, go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt in its place. Then that Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now, it has been under construction and it has not yet been completed. And now, if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. If it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of the God of Jerusalem and let the king send to us his decision concerning this matter. So essentially they're saying, okay, the claim of the Jews is that Cyrus not only sent them back to do this, but also gave them the utensils, the gold and the silver back, and told them to go back and rebuild the temple. We don't see any evidence of that. So we're writing to you, King Darius, and letting you know that this rebuilding effort is going on. It's moving forward. Great stones, giant timbers. It's all happening What do you say about it? Was there actually a decree? Because you got to know they're hoping there wasn't. They're hoping that the Jews just lied about a decree from Cyrus. And even then, it's probably lost to history somewhere. It's probably in some dusty room somewhere. If it can't be found, then we can stop this effort, which is what they really wanted. Now, knowing all that from chapter 5, we'll read chapter 6 in a minute, Knowing all that from chapter 5, are there any applications that we can make that apply to us at all at this time? I think there is. I think there's one great big glaring one. Because we do live in a time when our profession, the things we believe, the Bible itself, is being systematically repressed. And it is being systematically repressed by a oppressive, not only liberal agenda, but there's a great amount of governmental authority that would like the church to just shut up and go away and would like to keep the Bible away from human beings because after all, the Bible talks about things like don't murder to the people who are busy aborting babies and don't kill to the people who are busy killing and and don't commit adultery to the people who, well, you get it. We live in a society that is just sex-soaked. And then the Bible says, don't be like this. Mm. And so there are people today who would like the Bible to just shut up and go away, would like Christians to shut up and go away. 
So the question is, how should we react? How should we respond? Has God spoken to us the same way that he spoke to the Jews through the prophets? Well, when he sent Haggai and Zechariah, they were speaking directly for God, and the people listened, and because they understood that God was for them, and that God had great intentions for them, and for their nation, and for the restoration of his building, that inspired them to go and do it anyway, despite what the governmental authorities said, despite what the enemy said, despite what letters might be written. They were nevertheless going to do the work because they understood that God was for them and that it would equally go bad for them if they didn't do it, if they didn't respond to God, if they didn't listen to his word, if they didn't do what the prophet said to do, then they were going to continue to live in that state of being hungry and being cold and never having enough. So so they did it. So they went back to work. So they started rebuilding the temple to the degree that according to this letter, there's even great stones and giant timbers going up. I mean, this rebuilding effort was, was big. And their neighbors saw it, and their enemies realized it, and their enemies wanted to stop it. And when their enemies asked them, why do you do this, their answer was, because God said so. God said so, and that's good enough for us. We're okay with that. God said so. Now, oh yeah, there was a governmental thing at some point that allowed us to come back and do this. That should satisfy you. Go look that up. But we're not going to wait for you. We're not going to wait for you to send a letter and get a letter back and everything else. We're going to keep building. We're going to continue the rebuilding effort because God said so. Shall we apply that? Should we continue in the faith? Should we continue to learn the Bible? Should we continue in our Christianity? Should we continue to follow after the things God said? And did he say them directly to us? Well, I would argue that yes, and yes, and yes. There, I've answered all three of my questions. Um, yes, God spoke to us. We have the Bible. That is God's word. And as we listen to his word, we are called to respond to his word. And so we stay faithful to the things God has said to us. Is there going to be opposition? Yeah, there's always been opposition. Whether it's rebuilding Jerusalem or whether it's continuing to preach the gospel of God's grace. There's always going to be opposition. But should we go along to get along? Should we compromise? Should we try to make it easier on ourselves? Should we try to appease the enemies of God for our own sake? Well, no. Because consistently it has always been that God's people are called on to respond to God regardless of what the opposition is. Opposition is just part of the overall plan. Opposition is just part of the deal. If you belong to God, then you're not of this world. That's what Christ said. You're not of this world because I've chosen you out of this world. Therefore, the world loves you. And the world likes you and invites you to parties. No, that's not what he said. He said, I've chosen you out of the world, and therefore the world hates you. Mm. Well, the same world that hated him is going to hate us for standing for him. So opposition is just part of the deal. But should we kowtow to the opposition? Never. We should always stand up for God because, number one, his word deserves a defense. 
And number two, he has said over and over again that he's for us. And if he's that for us, then how do we neglect him? How do we turn our backs on him? How do we compromise with the world in order to make it easier for ourselves? Is that a fair application? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that takes us then to chapter 6. Because King Darius does actually find Darius, Darius, I'm going to go back and forth all night, so don't hold me to one or the other. But King Darius does find the decree from Cyrus. And he's going to end up siding with Israel because this is something else I found, and it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon which is, if you listen to God's word, you pay attention to God's word, and you do what God says to do, it's surprising sometimes how God defends you. You know, when Paul was on the road to Damascus, and uh, and Jesus, bright light, the voice of Christ says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus, who you persecute. Well, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. But Jesus took it personally. You persecute my people, you're persecuting me. And he rises up to defend that. Isn't that what we just read in Zechariah? I'm going to defend you, Israel, in such a way that I'm going to use Judah as a bow, and then I'm going to fill the bow with Ephraim. And like arrows, I'm going to use them to defend my people against the enemies. If you just stand for God, and I've seen it time and time again, and let me reassure you, you young people, which is pretty much everyone in the room comparative to me, but but just let me reassure you that if you stand up and do things God's way, you'll be surprised how frequently God defends you in a way that's really obvious where you kind of marvel at it and think that has to be God. There's no way I could have planned this. I'm not that smart, but God will defend you when you stand for him. The Bible says that you honor him. He'll honor you. So chapter six starts. Then King Darius issued a decree and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And in Ekbatana, in the fortress, okay, that's nowhere near Shushan the palace, and in Ekbatana, in the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and there was written in it as follows. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let its foundations be retained, its height being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits, with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers, and let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also Let the gold and the silver utensils of the temple of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem, be brought to Babylon, be returned, and brought to their places in the temple in Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God. And therefore, 
Tetanai, governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bolzanai, and all your colleagues, the officials of the provinces beyond the river, keep away from there. Okay, so once he's seen that King Cyrus said it, he realizes that there are rules among the Medes and the Persians. Do you remember in the book of Esther that we read a couple of times that Ahasuerus said, and Ahasuerus was convinced by the argument, make this rule because that makes it the law of the Medes and the Persians and can't be changed. And so that was a rule from King Cyrus that the Israelites were allowed to go back and rebuild their temple. And once that was seen by Darius, he said, that can't be changed. Those are the rules of the Medes and the Persians. Mm. So that being the case, those of you who are trying to withstand the work, stay away from there. I'm sure that's not what they were expecting. Mm. I'm sure that's not what they were looking for. Leave this work on the house of God alone, says verse 7. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for those elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river. And that without delay. Ouch is right. You want to withstand it? Now you got to pay for it. Okay, so, so a moment ago, well, okay, a few years ago, the house laid in ruins and the Jews were compromising because they had met with resistance. Now they're so determined to rebuild it that they're even getting the king of the Persians, Darius, saying that the governors who withstood them have to pay for it. What's the difference? What, what happened in between those two events? Obedience. Huh? Obedience. They were obedient. They went back to work. They went back because of the inspiration of God's word. Mm-hmm. What God said. And based on what God said, they put their bodies on the line in order to perform the very thing God said to do. And all of a sudden, God opens up the blessings. Then God proves to them that he's on their side. You know, I just said a few minutes ago, you'll be surprised when you stand up for the word of God and stand up for Christ. You'll be surprised the ways that God will defend you. You have to assume that the Jews here were really surprised to find out that Darius the king decided that their enemies who were trying to stop them had to pay for the whole thing. They had to be celebrating. Like, that's our God. That's a foreign king. That's an enemy of the Jews. And he just decreed that we're going to get all the financing we need to finish the house of the worship of God. That happened because of their obedience, and it happened in such a way that it has to be God. Because they couldn't talk them into it. No amount of debating and arguing on their part was going to get any money out of them. But now Darius the king is saying, okay, you governors, you got to pay for it now. Without delay. Verse 9 says, and whatever is needed, both young bulls and rams and lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, 
and wheat and salt and wine and anointing oil, as the priests of Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. Now, historians will tell us that it was actually the the Medes and the Persians who created crucifixion, which is essentially what you see foreshadowed here. Mm -hmm. The idea of take a timber out of somebody's house and then nail them to it. The Romans came along and thought that the Persians had a pretty good idea. It just wasn't painful enough. Mm -hmm. So they perfected the art of crucifixion. But that's why it's so important that in the Old Testament, the prophecies of the coming Messiah include that Israel is one day going to look on him whom they pierced. Mm. And at the time that that was said, crucifixion wasn't even a thing. And yet here it is in human history. Here it is. The Persians thought they came up with that themselves. Hey, here's a good form of punishment. How about if we nail people to stuff? That'd be painful. Did they come up with that out of their own imagination? Well, no, because God had already said that Christ was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So Christ had to die and he had to be lifted up in such a way that his skin was pierced so that Israel could be told that they were going to look on him whom they had pierced and weep like a mother weeps over her only child. And then in human history, people by their own quote-unquote free will did whatever they wanted to do and created this horrible form of torture called crucifixion so that Christ could end up crucified. Mm. So that the prophecies of God would all come out true. This is that sovereign God I keep talking about. (laughs) And even in the details like human beings making up forms of torture, God's still sovereign. God's still in charge. So that's my decree. If anybody violates this edict, a timber is going to be drawn from their house, they're going to be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of his denying this edict. And may the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. Okay, so was Darius a follower of the God of Israel? No. No. Listen to the language he used. What just happened? Was it was he converted at that moment or Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar, after he was made mad, came back and talked about the God of heaven, that God of Daniel, that God who considers the people of the earth, the inhabitants of the earth to be nothing. And that nobody can stop his hand and no one can say to him, what are you doing? Where did Nebuchadnezzar get that insight? Well, it was deposited into him 
by God who wanted that decreed about himself. Same thing here, I think, with Darius. Darius took a look at what Cyrus had said and in that moment realized that the Jews needed to go back and rebuild that temple because their God is the real God and don't let anybody stand in the way of that. It's pretty remarkable that God can even use unbelieving foreign kings to accomplish the very thing he wants to accomplish and then God arranged to finance it. And then God who demands sacrifices, knowing that all these Jews had gone back to Jerusalem without oxen and sheep and gold and silver and the God who requires sacrifice made sure that Darius told the governor to give them the sacrifices so that the worship of God could continue in his temple. I'm talking about a really sovereign God here. I'm also talking about a God who not only decrees that we ought to do things, but then provides us with the wherewithal to do it. That's the God we serve. Yes, sir. Not only did God decree what was to be done, but there's a very strong sense of urgency from a, a foreign king yeah. Words like immediately and all diligence are repeated in here. Yeah. And for some reason, he has a lot of respect for what's going on. Now, once he sees that decree from Cyrus, something changed in him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The end of verse 10. Not only are they supposed to sacrifice, but he wants them to He pray. wants them to pray for the life of the king and his sons. Yeah. And that may very well be it. He's, he realizes if that's the real There's God. God there, he may not be everything the Bible teaches God is, but we know he's really God, and let's pray to him. Yeah. Maybe I'm going to keep all my nods too. And these, Every little bit helps, right? Yeah, and these people, after 70 years of bondage in Babylon, are still devoted to him. Yes. Yeah. All right then, starting in verse 13. Then Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence. Well, yeah, you don't want to get nailed to your house. (laughs) You don't want it to become a dung heap. So they carried it out with all diligence, just as King Darius had sent. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and according to the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, the reason he mentions Artaxerxes again is that he steps a little bit out of chronological order again. At the time that these letters were going back and forth, we know that Darius was king. Next king is going to be Ahasuerus. That's going to be the time of Esther in that period. And again, the dedicated effort to kill all the Jews that we read about in Esther. And then God preserving them. Then there's Artaxerxes, who is once again going to establish a decree that's going to allow them to not only rebuild the temple, but rebuild the city and the walls and all of that. So Ezra, knowing the end of the story, included Artaxerxes in that sentence. And I'm just happy to have said the word Artaxerxes that many times in one sentence. And not flub it, too. And not flub it. I know. I feel good about me right now. Yeah. How many times did you say Shethar Bozenai? 
more than you want to know. <laughs> and this temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And the sons of Israel and the priests and the Levites and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered for the dedication of this temple of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats corresponding to the number of the tribes of all Israel. Now, by the way, at that moment, was all Israel there? No, the northern tribes weren't part of this. And yet, in the dedication of the temple of Israel, collectively, God, through his prophets, has talked about the regathering of all 12 tribes. And so they start sacrificing for all 12 tribes. And then they appointed the priests to their divisions, and the Levites in their orders for the service of, of God in Jerusalem, as it was written in the book of Moses. And the exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. Isn't that convenient, by the way, that it just happened to be completed in the first month? Just in time for God's Passover to be observed on the 14th day of that month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. And the sons of Israel who returned from exile, and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them, to seek the Lord, the God of Israel, they ate the Passover. And they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So look at that last sentence. Ezra takes the time to tell us the reason that the temple of God was rebuilt the house of God, the very God of Israel, the reason that was done was because that very God turned the heart of the king of Assyria. Because even the heart of the king is in the hands of God and like rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he wants. And if he wants to turn the heart of the king to come back to agreeing that the Jews can rebuild his temple, God's going to do that because ultimately it's all about the worship of God. And God is not going to let a place like Jerusalem stand in ruins or let his temple stand in ruins while he's declaring his jealousy over it. So he's going to control the events of humankind in such a way where the end result is exactly what he had said. <coughs> Notice that the end of the story is not that God said, I'm jealous over my temple, and then they tried to rebuild it, but they were withstood by their enemies, and the temple lays in ruins. That's not the story. The story is God said, I'm jealous over my temple, I want my temple, and you human beings don't stand in my way. Even you enemies of Israel don't stand in my way. Even you kings of the earth don't stand in my way. I will make you do what I want done. And the end of the story is that's exactly what happened. Now, in two weeks, we'll pick up at chapter 7 
which is finally where Ezra enters the book of Ezra. Because now there's a second wave of people coming in from Babylon to Jerusalem to join in the rebuilding effort. And Ezra is going to be leading them. Ezra is a priest, and he's going to bring them back to the law of Moses, to the understanding of Moses. And he is going to return the children of Israel back to what they were originally meant to be for a period. And then Malachi rises right around that period of time, and then God's silent for 400 years. And during that silent period, the children of Israel go, well, whatever. And then Jesus appears on the planet. And yet they didn't worship idols. During that period. But God brought their enemies back. It's the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, and it's the time of Alexander the Great. And his brother, Dave the Adequate. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) Don't shake your head at me. (laughs) So Steve will be standing here next Wednesday. He will bring the lesson next time. The lessons that he has brought in the past have all been very enjoyable. Make sure that you're here to support him. I, I think you probably will after my words a couple weeks ago. But... Come and, and, and give him lots of positive eye contact and give him somebody to talk to. And I'll tell you, it's always more fun to preach when there's someone to preach to. So. And I'll work really hard to come up with some terrible jokes. If you would, please, and that way people won't miss me so much. <laughs> so. Next Wednesday morning, I'll be preaching out of Romans 8, oddly enough, at the conference in... Uh, in uh, Chattanooga. Chattanooga. Yeah, how could I have forgotten? Chatty, down in Chattanooga. So pray for us down there. And then that's it. That's it for my travels for this summer. I'm, I'm done with conference season. Not going to Ohio or New York or anything like that this year. So I'll finally settle in for the fall. All righty. Any questions about what you heard tonight? You know, last night, you mentioned this when we were finishing up in, in Romans 8. How many times people said, wow. And this is one of those passages where the same thing is true. It's like, wow. Yeah, wow. That's the God of the Bible. That's the real God of the real Bible. I, I watched a debate this evening uh, that included uh, the atheist Dan Barker who essentially uh, demonstrated the confusion that every atheist of his sort has. I I don't know how he can hold these two opposing ideas. He kept saying, God doesn't exist, but then he kept demonstrating how much he hated him. (laughs) Kept finding all these passages in the Bible to say, well, God's like this, and the God of the Bible's like this, the God of the Bible's like that, the God of the Bible's... Well, well, we just found out tonight what the God of the Bible is like. And fortunately, we're on the side where we get to see the good graces of the God of the Bible. And that's a good place to be, especially compared to somebody who would say the, the evil and wicked things that Dan Barker said about the God of the Bible. But the Bible demonstrates a God that makes you want to say, wow. And when you reject him, you end up having to to just hate him. 
but you can't get past that to the point of saying, but he doesn't exist. Mm. I've never seen Dan Barker debate the Easter Bunny because he's convinced the Easter Bunny doesn't exist. He doesn't debate leprechauns. But over and over and over again, he debates God. He can't seem to reach that point of believing he really doesn't exist. All righty, there's all that. No questions? We're good? I've never understood how somebody could, could hate somebody that you don't even think exists. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, it's the genuine definition of cognitive dissonance. When you hold two completely opposite ideas in your head and believe they're both true, how do you do that? Yes? I, every now and again, will visit his website, Freedom From Religion Foundation. That's yeah. his, his website. Every time I go there and all of his videos and things, it's always, he's got news articles or whatever it is about Christianity, the Judeo-Christian. There's nothing about Islam or no. any other, there's lots of other religions it should be named the Freedom from Christianity Foundation. That would be a more accurate title. But oddly, I find it reassuring that he spends so much time and energy combating Christianity because there's something about that that's different. Mm-hmm. And the evidence is on his blogs, on his social media, everywhere. That's where he spends his energy. Well, I think you can make the argument, like I did a moment, that he doesn't debate leprechauns because right. he's just convinced they don't exist. So why doesn't he debate Islam? I'll tell you why. Because yeah. Muslims will kill him if he does. Well, that too. <laughs> that also. Yeah. So why doesn't he debate Buddhists? Why doesn't he debate Hindus? Why doesn't he debate Zoroastrians? Why doesn't he, you know. Where do you find Zoroastrians? Yeah, I know. It's going to be a tough one, but it would be a good debate. What did you say, James? I got an answer for you on why they don't do that. Why? Because evil celebrates evil. Well, that's true. They don't hate Islam as much as they hate Christianity, and Micah, don't miss his good point, which was, that's the one that they just can't seem to get past. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, because it has genuine truth at the center of it, Mm -hmm. and so you have to constantly try to shout it down. Paul writes about it. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, that means the truth exists. They just keep suppressing it. So... I don't know how we got on to Dan Barker after, oh, wow, that's where we started was, wow, it's the real God of the real Bible, and that's what he's really like. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. For extra, like, inspiration, do you have a personal, off the top of your head, do you have a personal story of, like, what you were talking about when God obeys his people? When God obeys his people. Oh, sorry, when God's people obey him, um, he opens up the window. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. Can you, <laughs> can you tell one? Well, like I mean, you're asking me for a personal story. Or just so, you, you know, I'm going to end up talking about myself. But, but, yeah, there's a really big one in my life. You know I used to be a rock and roll drummer. And I had a pretty successful rock and roll career. And I got to do a lot of things that most people don't get to do. Make albums, play stadiums, perform in front of thousands of people a night. Most musicians don't get to do that. And right at the point where God woke me up again to the truth of his word, through the book of John, that that was the beginning of it for me. From the point of my conversion, my career tanked just as 
fast as it possibly can. From the moment that I walked outside of my apartment, I've told that story many times, I'm in San Francisco, I heard the proof of the resurrection, I walked out into my garden, and I looked up and I said, checkmate, you win. From that moment, you can mark it in time, it's like a calendar, from that point, my rock and roll career went right into the pit. Boom, over. I thought, it's the end of my life, this is all I know how to do is play drums. It's the only thing I'm good at. Oh, here I am at 62, and he's provided for me all the way along because I remained obedient to his call in my life, mm. which is the reason I'm standing here doing this now. So I have a really big example of it, that God provided for me all the days of my life. I don't think in reaction to the fact that I was obedient, but I did honor him, put my body on it, and he's taken care of me ever since. Make sense? Okay, good. Anything else? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.